And a warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Wednesday and a busy show as always coming up, including surprise to Jeune, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, making an unannounced visit to Kyiv. An important show of American support for Ukraine ahead of the G20 meetings this weekend as the counteroffensive in Ukraine extends to a fourth month. A live report from Kyiv just ahead. Plus, temperature trepidation. A new UN report says the Northern Hemisphere is suffering its hottest summer on records. I think something most of us suspected already. Ocean temperatures at record levels too. And all this as torrential rain triggers serious flooding in Greece, Turkey and Bulgaria. At least seven people losing their lives as a result. And climate calamities mounting, but also climate commitments. The first ever African Climate Summit wrapping up in Nairobi. We'll explore the roadmap for the continent ahead of COP28 this fall. President Ruto of Kenya describing climate change as a challenge, but also an opportunity. And some in the venture capital community certainly agree. We'll hear from the managing partner of Catalyst Fund, which is backing hot green projects in Africa and beyond. In the meantime, the action on global markets, well, not so hot. U.S. stocks look set to fall for a second straight session amid fears that rising oil prices might reverse the recent encouraging news on inflation. And a fresh flood of anticipated corporate borrowing also pushing up U.S. bond yields too. The results, I think, two Asian stocks mixed. But strength in the Chinese property sector, the best performing stock on the Hang Seng. Tough to guess, but I'll tell you, it's bankrupt developer Evergrande. It's up 82% on the session, still down significantly on the year, just for context, but perhaps a reflection, I think, of a less dire financial outlook for Country Garden, another key Chinese property firm. Some might call that a dead cat bounce, however. We shall move on. Lots to get to, as always. And we do begin in Ukraine. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on the ground in Kyiv at this hour on a surprise visit. America's top diplomat set to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky while he's there. No reprieve for Ukrainians, however, as the Russian attacks continue. At least 16 people have lost their lives in a missile attack on a market in Donetsk. Melissa Bell joins us now from Kyiv. Melissa, I know the details on this just coming in. What more do we know? Uh, what we uh, understand is that this uh, is an attack. We're just beginning to get details of it, uh, Julia. Uh, Kostyan Tanivka is a, a town just to the west of Bakhmut, uh, and it is uh, within uh, striking distance. Of course, it is also where the military personnel who've been uh, fighting this counteroffensive along the Eastern Front, and a lot of the fighting has been happening uh, around Bakhmut uh, these last few days with Ukraine claiming uh, to have made uh, gains, but certainly a lot of intense fighting these last few days. Uh, this is a small town within striking distance of that. What we're hearing are that 16 civilians, including one child, has been killed as a result of that shelling. President Zelensky's just been speaking to that, calling it the utter inhumanity uh, with which Russia is prosecuting this war, pointing out that this is, will have been an ordinary marketplace, a pharmacy, uh, people going about their daily lives, people, in the words of President Zelensky, who've done nothing wrong. Um, and I think it's an important reminder, Julia, of the heavy price that so many civilians continue to pay, not just in those towns uh, that are within striking range of Russian artillery. And they are, of course, 
substantial when you consider the length of this front line, uh, but all around the country. In fact, it was here in Kyiv uh, that there were, just ahead of, President, of, of Secretary Blinken's visit this morning, uh, more overnight missile strikes, ballistic cruise missiles that, although intercepted by air defenses, Julia, did cause damage. An important reminder, even as the American Secretary of State comes here, uh, of exactly what it is he's come to talk about, Julia. Yeah, a key illustration of what they're suffering and why they need more support. Melissa Bell, we'll let you go there. Thank you so much for that. Now, today's discussions will certainly revolve around the critical Ukrainian counteroffensive too and a recent success for Ukraine, recapturing the village of Robotine in the Zaporizhia region. It took weeks of bitter fighting, but it allowed Ukrainian troops to rescue many civilians. And ahead of today's meeting, Melissa Bell got to meet the men of the 47th Brigade who fought so hard for that victory and at great personal cost. The flag now flies over what's left of Robotine. Ukrainian leaders say it's the first victory of the three-month counteroffensive, a source of great pride for the men of the 47th Mechanized Brigade. The soldiers hadn't expected to find them, but rushed the handful of men and elderly women into their Bradley vehicle before speeding away as quickly as they could. Back in the safety of a nearby wood, the civilians are given much-needed water and phones. But for the 47th Brigade, Robotina was just the start, and some of its heroes have since fallen. I'd like to ask about your colleagues. The day you went into Robotina and you took the civilians out, there was another team, but they were killed. Ми злагодження проходили в Германії. Ми обучалися в Германії на американській базі. І вірити тяжко про це розповідати. Для нас дуже тяжкий опрат. Да. споминати, розказувати, ну, як сказати, це дуже тяжко на на душі. Це з тим яким ти чоловіком прожив, проспав, проїв. І його потім різко не стало. Still, they carry on southwards along a stretch of road they've nicknamed the Road to Hell. Melissa Belsienen, Zaporizhia region. Meanwhile, extreme weather battering parts of the European continent in Greece. Torrential rains and flooding have swept the country over the past few days. At least two people lost their lives. In Bulgaria, heavy rain caused severe floods along the country's southern coastline, damaging both roads and bridges. And in Turkey, floods caused by torrential rain on Tuesday have claimed a further two lives. Authorities say four others 
are still missing. All of this coming after what's officially been declared the hottest summer on record, at least that's the verdict, from the EU's Copernicus Climate Change Service. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, something most of us already suspected. The UN chief, Antonio Gutierrez, is calling on world leaders to act immediately as the climate is, quote, imploding faster than we can cope. Our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, joins us now. Bill, always good to have you on. He had a better quote. The dog days of summer are not just barking, they are biting. Now, we've had hot summers before. The key is that we've not just broken records by a mere tiny margin. It's the size of the margin beats here, I think, that's more important. It is startling, Julia, to see that. Normally, scientists are used to seeing maybe one hundredth of a, of a percentage point of, of Celsius degree raise. This new record is over three-tenths of a degree Celsius, shattering uh, the previous records. The bar chart, it looks like a hockey stick. And this is the least surprising new record. Of course, if anybody who has experienced this summer, uh, June was the hottest ever, July now the hottest month ever recorded, and now August the hottest August, put them together. Uh, sadly, the, the alternative headline to this, Julia, is this is also maybe the coolest summer of the rest of our lives. El Nino is just beginning, next year predicted to be much warmer, and then the trend going forward, uh, the last couple of months have been 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That, of course, is the target that we're trying to hold after the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, the worry is that'll be the new norm. It's just a monthly uh, uh, spike right now. But here we are, and you can see the results. Greece going from, from those fires to floods in a blink. It's the extremes that we're seeing now. Uh, the water cycle just seems to be drunk, frankly. I mean, this is the point, I think, as well. It's just a preview of what the world would look like if we continue to allow it to heat and we get beyond that one and a half degrees Celsius that we, that we always come back to. It's more summers, more extreme winters, more extreme weather. But just going back over your experience of reporting on these, because a lot of the pushback I hear is people saying, look, we've had hot summers before. We've seen this before. It's, this is no real difference. We've, we've been here before. Just in your reporting experience, is this sort of worse than you've ever seen it? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. It's worse than anybody's ever seen. Uh, we, we tend to be very focused on all weather is local, and there's always a bluebird day that follows a, a brutal heat wave or, or a blizzard, uh, and you just think it's going to even out the way we grew up with. Uh, but that planet is gone now, and you, when it is 110 degrees Fahrenheit for two weeks in a row in Phoenix, you know, 40 degrees Celsius, it's it, these, these heat domes now, like giant pizza ovens sitting over continents, what is happening under the water, under the ocean, waves that we can't see off the chart sea surface uh, record temperatures that is stressing marine life and marine economies in so many ways that we've yet to fully realize. It is uh, blinking, uh, the dashboard is blinking bright red everywhere you look, uh, and there is still time to decide the fate of how bad it gets, uh, but no indication from, from major oil producers that they want to change business model anytime soon. Yeah, but I think your point's such a valid one. Don't look at the weather just around you. Look globally at the changes that we're seeing, and I think it's pretty clear. But we're always a pleasure, so thank you. You bet. Now, all of this comes as the Africa Climate Summit ends in Nairobi. African leaders warned countries on the continent face, quote, disproportionate burdens and risks from climate change. 
and called for urgent action to reduce emissions. In a joint declaration, Wednesday leaders said Africa is not historically responsible for global warming, but bears the brunt of its effect, impacting lives, livelihoods and economies. Larry Madoa is there and joins us now. Larry, we've been asking the question all week, I think. Show me the money. Where's the money? So the money did not come today beyond the pledges and the commitments, but the African leaders are convinced that the money has to come, especially for renewable energy. As the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said yesterday, Africa can be a renewable energy superpower. We didn't see any more commitments today, but their declaration really putting strong impetus on this African decision to make sure that Africa gets the, its fair share of the financing for adaptation because that's an important priority right now. As Africa suffers the brunt of the climate crisis, they need that, that money comes in quickly to help people just survive. So we didn't see that, but I think what has been the huge takeaway from this, Julia, has got to be the convening power that the African Union and the Kenyan government has been able to do. They got Ursula von der Leyen from the European Union Commission here, the UN Secretary General, John Kerry, the US, the US Climate Envoy, all of them in the same room. And I think this is important. I was speaking to one young African who says, it's useful that Africans all came together ahead of COP28 to agree on their platform going into it. However, there's some pessimism as well. Another young Ugandan who just told me that this feels like the movie Don't Look Up with Leonardo DiCaprio, there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of denial, but the time for action is, not, is right now, not tomorrow, right now. And he says he feels like he's watching Don't Look Up, but in real life. Yeah. It's about not just the momentum, it is about the money and the follow through on this. I have to say though, Larry, with our young people, I don't worry because they'll continue to push for action in, in all ways and forms. Um, Larry Madero, great to have you with us, thank you. Now later on First Move, the title is The Coming Wave, but is it really more of a technological tsunami and is there a way to successfully ride it? Author, entrepreneur and co-founder of DeepMind, Mustafa Suleiman joins us to discuss his book and our future. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to First Move. Before the break, we were discussing the need for greater funding for climate adaption and mitigation. It was my quote of show me the money. Well, our next guest is focused on doing just that. Catalyst Fund is a startup accelerator that's funding innovative companies across Africa, Latin America and Asia. It's looking to raise $40 million from investors to fund a climate-focused startups across Africa. And it's already put money into 10 firms from Egypt and Kenya to Senegal and Nigeria. 
The portfolio includes Santa Green, which is working to transform desert into cultivable land in Morocco, and Farm to Feed, using digital tech to reduce food waste in Kenya. And joining us now is Melis Carrero. She's the managing partner of Catalyst Fund, which is part of BFA Global Group. Melis, fantastic to have you on the show. Just start by explaining Catalyst Fund and how you look for good investments. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Catalyst Fund is a pre-seed venture fund and accelerator that backs early stage tech startups building a climate resilient future in Africa. So we look for companies really making an impact on climate adaptation benefits on the continent across a range of sectors, because we truly believe that every sector of the economy will have to adapt to climate change impacts. So, for example, we're looking for companies in the insurance space, in the agriculture space, um, but also in access to water or clean energy or waste management, essential solutions that we help build the resilience of climate vulnerable communities. Okay, so give me an example, because I mentioned farm to feed. What was it about this startup that made you think, you know what, they're doing the right things, they're a good investment, we're going to get a return on our money, because clearly this is part of the the decisions that you have to make at this stage, even as an early stage seed or venture capitalist fund. Talk me through that. Uh, Absolutely. Farm to Feed is a Kenyan company who's trying to dramatically reduce food waste and food loss by connecting uh, uh, producers, so farmers, to um, off takers, in this case, for example, restaurants or even airlines, and help them to sell the odd-looking produce. So basically not your grade A produce, but the grade B and C that would otherwise not be sold. And what this does is contributing to increasing the income of the farmers, but also to dramatically reduce food waste, which, as you know, has an impact also on CO2 reduction. So for us, uh, we saw this as a digital model that had uh, both a big impact on farmers' income, but it could also be scaled, not just in Kenya, but across the continent. And that's what's going to drive our returns. Yeah. And how much money on average do you give startups like this? I'm sure it differs depending on where they're operating or what they're doing, but just on average, how much money are we talking about? Actually, we are a pre-seed stage fund. So we are usually the first backers, the first check in the company. So we invest $200,000 at pre-seed, very beginning of the startup journeys. And within that, $100,000 is cash and $100,000 is venture building support, which means that our team in the fund has the expertise across all the functions that an early stage startup needs. And we can come in and help with marketing, with growth, with fundraising, with sales, with product, data, technology issues, which really helps companies get to the next level of scale and and reach uh, and be able to attract further financing. And after that first check, we're also able to provide follow-on funding. Usually it's around $500,000 at seed stage and over a million dollars at series A. So we really try to stay with our founders all the way to that initial growth. Um, and at that point, other investors hopefully step in. Yeah. Oh, and what does it cost the company themselves? Because I, the comparison that I'm making here, and again, I have this conversation a lot, that just getting access to finance in certain parts of this world is just prohibitively expensive. And it's part of the challenge for outside and international investors coming in and working out sort of what they're willing to invest and the risks that they're taking. How does it compare? And again, how do you weigh up those risks, price those risks? 
It's a great question. Um, our model at Precede uh, is standardized. So we take 5% of the companies, which is lower on average than other early stage uh, VC funds or accelerators, because we did want to create a model that was uh, that put the founders first, that was founders friendly. And um, I will say, though, that it is still very difficult for early stage startups to access both equity and debt. In particular, debt typically comes uh, at a higher cost. And this is something that we try to change and disrupt with our fund, trying to place $200,000 across 40 companies over the next five years. Yeah, it's great. How do you um, and how do we scale this? You're just one fund and it's brilliant, but it's a drop in the ocean in terms of the work that needs to be done to not only support these businesses, but also tackle some of the huge challenges that, that the continent has. Are you working with governments? And just from what you've already seen, how could you better perhaps or those governments work with you to help grow this? Absolutely. We, um, as a private sector fund, don't work directly with individual governments, but we certainly take part in the conversation. So, for example, we were just now at the Africa Climate Summit here in Kenya, I'm in Nairobi right now, and um, really made a strong call for more capital from both the public sector and the private sector to come in to support climate innovators on the continent that can really drive green growth and adaptation solutions for climate impacts. And I think the government in particular has a key role to enable private sector funding to come in, de-risk that funding, potentially with structures that blend different kinds of capital, and then really scale what is working in critical sectors here, for example, agriculture, but also clean energy, which is going to be a very important resource to enable low carbon growth in the future. Yeah, what Maya's picked up there with the idea perhaps of some form of risk sharing so that you can come in, but there's also some offset there. And hopefully that allows them sort of greater leverage of the money that's available. Um, How close to the $40 million are you? We have just announced our first close at slightly above 20% of the fund raised. But we're really (laughs) hoping that uh, with this announcement, we're going to generate momentum and partner with other investors that really share a vision of a world where every individual has the tools they need to thrive uh, against the risk of climate change. Yeah, that's why I asked the question. That's when you ask a question you know the answer to, because if there are any investors watching, um, you're the lady to call. Um, Melis, great to chat to you. Thank you so much, and um, we'll certainly keep in touch. Thank you. Melis Carrera, the managing partner of Catalyst Fund. More first move after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. China is banning the use of iPhones for central government officials. That's according to a report, at least in the Wall Street Journal. Mark Stewart joins us now from Beijing. Mark, I was just looking at Apple's numbers. Revenues from China, a fifth of their total. So this will send off a few alarm bells if it's true. What more do we know about this report? Indeed, Julia. In fact, as you know, Tim Cook was just here in Beijing in uh, March of this year, I believe, in a very high-profile visit. So this is certainly a big brand that is going to get a lot of attention. Certainly, this is headline-grabbing, but if you look at the relationship between the United States and China, 
it's maybe not necessarily surprising. China very much operates under this philosophy. If you do something to harm us or to penalize us, we'll do something to hurt you back. And this may fall in this narrative as we have seen restrictions back and forth over the last few months in this very complicated relationship. Now, we have reached out to to China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs to get their take on this. At this point, no response. But according to a source who talked to CNN, an unnamed source because of the sensitivity of all of this, this is something that the government has quietly been doing, suggesting that Apple iPhone products not be used for government business. And now we have this more formal policy. But again, this is something that we have seen back and forth. In fact, uh, Several months ago, uh, Chinese ministers banned uh, Tesla. Some Chinese ministers banned Tesla products, cars, on the premises of different locations over security concerns. Uh, We recently saw the United States government uh, about a year ago place some restrictions on Chinese devices, uh, phone, cellular phone type devices uh, from Huawei and by ZTE. So this very much falls into the narrative. How Apple will respond, what this will do to their market share and what this will mean for Chinese consumers. This is a very competitive mobile phone market. Julia, we're just going to have to see, but I think this is fair to say it's very much in this back and forth uh, relationship between the United States and China, especially when it comes to penalties and restrictions. Yes, couldn't agree more. But um, restricting them for government figures is very different, I think, from uh, consumers. Watch this space. Mark Stewart, thank you. Now, just into CNN, Spanish football player Jenny Hermoso has filed a legal complaint over the unsolicited kiss by the president of Spain's Football Federation. It's been two and a half weeks since Spain won the Women's World Cup and Luis Rubiales kissed Hermoso after their victory. Amanda Davis joins us now. Amanda, I think a lot of people wondering why this hadn't happened sooner. What more do we know about this complaint? Yeah, Julia, we know that last week that Spanish uh, prosecutors had said they were opening an investigation and said that they were going to speak to Jenny Hermoso over the course of the next 15 days about the kiss, which President Luis Rubiales uh, has always said was consensual. Jenny Hermoso, the Spanish player, has always said was not. And what has just emerged uh, in the last few minutes is a statement from Spain's prosecutor's office saying that Jenny Hermoso has submitted a complaint for the events that you all know. The statement says the National Court's Prosecutor's Office will file a complaint as soon as possible, which will be sent to you as a press release. Uh, The statement took place at the State Attorney General's Office to protect the privacy of the victim. We haven't heard anything more from Jenny Hermoso herself. Uh, She's been relatively quieter on social media. And what happens next? We wait and see. But of course, this is the legal avenue that is now being pursued for those events that played out uh, on that Sunday evening on August the 20th uh, in Sydney. Um, It will be very interesting to see what, if any, ramifications that will have from the footballing perspective, of course, because Luis Rubiales has been suspended, as you well know, as we've been talking about, by World Football Governing Body FIFA. 
but as yet he hasn't resigned officially from his post uh, as president of the Spanish Football Federation and he has been unable to be removed by the Spanish sporting governing bodies up to this point. So this is quite a significant step, it feels, but there's still quite a long way to go to, to find out you know, what happens next. Yes, now it's not just about uh, outrage, it's now a formal legal complaint in this case, Amanda. Someone, though, that has lost their job is um, the women's national team coach, was sort of embattled himself and criticised in the run-up to the World Cup. He's now lost his job, which he says is unfair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think that's particularly surprising, is it, when we see you know, the, the defiance from the president, Luis Rubiales, that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. And Jorge Vilda, the women's national team coach, has been for a long time one of his closest allies. He was there applauding in the front row, wasn't he, when Rubiales uh, gave that defiance speech to the General Assembly. As you rightly said, his tenure, particularly over the last few years as manager of the Spanish national women's team has been filled with complaints and stories uh, that have played out to a greater or lesser extent publicly of unrest in the dressing room and the camp. That letter that was written by the 15 players complaining uh, about their treatment of the structures, the lack of support that they were receiving. So despite Jorge Vilda guiding his team to a first ever women's World Cup success. His tenure has now come to an end and really that was expected given the resignation of the entirety of his uh, coaching staff last week. The letter from 81 players on the men's and the women's side refusing to play for their national federation with the current structures uh, at the helm. It's very interesting, though, in terms of Jorge Vilda's replacement, uh, Motse Tomei. She's being heralded as a first female coach of this women's side. But is she entirely a new era being ushered in? Well, the only person she has ever worked under as a coach is Jorge Vilda. The only place she has ever been an assistant coach is at the Spanish Football Federation. So whilst the talk is a new era being ushered in, there is perhaps some suspicion that perhaps not as new a brush as people had been hoping for. Mm, but the spotlight is certainly going to be on her. Amanda Davis, thank you so much for that. Coming up here on First Move, the technological revolution and the new world it will create. And we're not just talking about artificial intelligence. It's actually way bigger than that. It's next. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Welcome back to First Move and you're looking at live pictures of the New York City skyline. A wilting, wiltering, sweltering Wednesday for all of us here in the big, or should I say baked apple, with temperatures set to soar past 33 degrees Celsius today. I can tell you it feels hotter 
And the major U.S. average is also wilting a little in early trade to a second day of weakness. As you can see there on Wall Street, fresh turbulence for travel stocks, too, after oil prices hit nine-month highs in Tuesday's session. Southwest Airlines, in fact, is warning today that rising fuel costs will have an impact on its bottom line. Though oil pulling back a little in today's session, Brent crude is still trading near $90 a barrel, as you can see there. Now, we're moving on to the world of tomorrow, a place where artificial intelligences will be our companions and helpers, confidants and colleagues. They'll organize our lives and listen to our burning desires and our darkest fears. Drones and robots will be ubiquitous. The human genome will be an elastic thing and so necessarily will be the very idea of the human itself. Many will disappear almost entirely into virtual worlds. Imagine that. These are just some of the quotes from The Coming Wave, a book that details the technological revolution that is and will reshape our world in unimaginable ways. Is it a wave or is it a tsunami? Well, we need to ask its author. Mustafa Suleiman is the co-founder of DeepMind, the AI firm that made international headlines for creating AlphaGo. He was also the VP of AI products and policy at Google. And he's now the CEO of an AI startup called Inflection. And of course, he's also an author. And Mustafa joins us now. Great to have you on the show. I read the book. I have to say I loved it. We were just discussing in the break. I didn't love the end. Um, it's not just about AI. It's about mutually reinforcing technologies that are all coming at the same time and strengthening together robotics, um, AI, synthetic biology. Um, and as you say in the book, it's going to change the way we think about both life and intelligence in unimaginable ways. I mean, these are incredible new technologies. In some sense, they are like what we have seen in the past. Like All technologies have actually made us massively more productive, wealthy, and healthy as a species. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like trying to explain air travel to somebody 200 years ago? It was just completely out of bounds of our imagination. And now it's a run-of-the-mill, everyday, critical part of our lives. And that's how technology happens. At first, it seems absurd and crazy and really difficult to wrap our heads around. And then it becomes utterly essential and integral to everything that we do and makes us so much better. And the challenge that we have, of course, is just making sure that those new technologies are safe, they remain in our control, and they always deliver massively more benefits than the potential harms. And that's the quest that we're on. That's why I wrote the book, The Coming Wave. You talk about containment that this idea that actually containment itself is a, is a moving target. And some of what you said there makes that, um, I think, perfectly obvious, because actually we're not really sure where we're headed or at what speed. We just know we seem to be accelerating. Um, the quote from the book is, containment is not a resting place. It's a narrow and never-ending path. We sort of had to get a grips with that at a time where we're quite binary about how we regulate things and how we talk about things. For me, um, that was one of the most mind-blowing things is the recognition that even after reading the book, I'm not sure we're, we're in control of this. I'm not sure we understand it. I'm not sure we're ready for it. In fact, I know we're not. There's no question that the pace of change is accelerating. So in the past, innovation and science took place in the world of atoms. You needed to physically move things around to build dams and bridges and nuclear power plants. 
And that friction introduced the kind of slowness that gave us time to wrap our heads around the potential consequences of these new technologies. Today, these technologies of, of life, engineering new life, synthetic biology and artificial intelligence, exist mostly in the kind of computational space. And that means that they can evolve way more quickly than they ever have in the physical real world. And so the pace of change is definitely moving incredibly fast. Yeah, and I'll put it in really basic English. A lot of the powers that we're going to have are going to be accessible by a phone. The proliferation of all these technologies is coming to us as individuals. It's not in nation states or big tech's hands, really, um, to, to control this and, um, and to own it, at least where we are today. There was a quote in it that I loved, though, and you said it, I think, best of everything I've read about this. Technology is ultimately political because technology is a form of power. And perhaps the single overriding characteristic of the coming wave is that it will democratize access to power. And actually, in recent comments that you've made, for me, the most immediate is elections and election interference and deep fakes. You've come openly out and said, ban AI in elections in the United States in 2024. My question to you is how? <laughs> well, look, the reality is that everybody is ultimately going to get access to these tools. So even though at the moment they're being developed by the biggest tech companies and startups, the open source movement is just a year or maybe 18 months behind the absolute cutting edge. And on the face of it, that's an incredible story. It's a great thing. It means everybody gets access to tools that help us be much more creative and innovative and build new value for everybody. On the flip side of that, it also does mean that everybody has now the power to generate synthetic media, video, audios, images, that will be completely indistinguishable from anything that is generated by a human. So not only will it be super accurate, it can be automated and personalized to whoever it's being communicated to. And that adaptability, that real-time responsiveness to a real human is gonna change the, the landscape in a very, very fundamental way. And so containment is really about making sure that the technologies we invent always remain within our democratic government's control and over, overseen by them. That's the big challenge we have. You know, I'll go through them because there are 10 points um, that you say on the path to containment. And I've got questions on all of them, but I have to restrict myself. One of them is the makers of this. Responsible developers build appropriate values into technology from the start. Do you think we've sort of blown that up already? Did, did OpenAI, did Microsoft blow up that premise already on unleashing chat GPT-like tools on an unsuspecting but excitable public, admittedly? No, I think it's great to give tools to everybody to allow them to experiment and to play because the sooner everybody gets an intuition for the strengths and weaknesses of these new AIs, the sooner the fear will start to subside and we'll get comfortable with the potential upsides, but we'll also be critical of the downsides. And so we need to give people access to the tools to be able to break them and identify their weaknesses. And if you look at the large language models that are out today, I mean, my own company, Inflection, for example, makes Pi, a personal intelligence. It's incredibly safe. It's very, very boundaried. It's really careful not to be offensive or biased 
or in any way produce toxicity or encourage you or, you know, to, to learn how to develop weapons, for example, which is technically possible in some of the LLMs. But all of the companies are, are quickly getting on top of these risks, just like back in the day when aircraft, you know, started to become a popular mode of transport. All of the aircraft companies wanted to make sure flight was one of the safest possible ways of getting around. And now it is. It's kind of amazing to think that we could be 40,000 feet in the sky and it's one of the safest ways to get around. And I, I do think that's the trajectory we'll be on with these AIs. We'll make them much more controllable and accountable. I think um, one of the other things that you suggested, which I actually really like, if indeed the how part works is choke points. Find out ways that we can do what you said and introduce friction and slow this down. And one of the ways was NVIDIA, which effectively controls the market for AI tied chips. And you're saying actually restrict sales to certain entities, nation states, China, for example, if they don't play by the rules. Do you think that's practical? Have you discussed that? Because, you know, you've met the US government. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent some time with President Biden yeah. uh, a few months ago now at the White House and, you know, the export controls on, on China really, really will prevent China from getting access to the next uh, generation of new models, the very largest models at, say, GPT-5, for example. And, you know, you, you certainly could use those same methods to impose regulatory restrictions on how this suite of models are going to be used even domestically and, and among our allies. I don't think it's time for us to do that. I think we're still many years away from that kind of you know, threat arising, that kind of risk requiring that kind of intervention, which would be a really significant intervention. But I do think if you look out in the longer term, say on a five to 10 year period, then you could start to imagine that this would be a reasonable thing to do. And we've certainly done this with supply chains in other areas. Like, for example, getting access to biological and chemical weapons components or getting access to be able to develop and handle nuclear materials. These all require licensing regimes. You have to be trained and mandated. The government tracks who has what, where and how they operate. And I can imagine the same kind of regime happening in a decade or so with these large language models. You've also said building alliances is key. And you and I've talked about this in the past. One of the ways that yeah. you said actually perhaps we can do that and you've touched upon it there is sort of in synthetic biology information sharing. I just that also struck me in the book because I was thinking post pandemic with the the sort of lack of data sharing, the speculation, the um, the fear, I think, of how that happened and where it happened and the implications. I'm not I'm not sure an alliance is capable. We're capable of alliances at this stage in that sphere, never mind anywhere else. What gives you the optimism and the confidence that it can be achieved? Look, I mean, we now have the tools to be able to engineer new pandemic grade viruses and compounds at huge scale. It's going to become much cheaper and easier to not just read DNA, but synthesize that DNA and create new compounds that could be more lethal and more transmissible than anything that we've seen in COVID. Now, that creates a mutually assured destruction incentive, which, which should drive our cooperation with China. More than anything at the moment, we need to be figuring out ways to de-risk this threat of Cold War conflict with China. All of the rhetoric is amplifying that tension. And this is an opportunity where we can coordinate and cooperate. But Mustafa, what you're saying is in five to 10 years, an individual could create one of those pathogens that's far worse than a COVID situation. I mean, that's arguably what we're dealing with here without, I think, being too alarmist. 
I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that is honestly the trajectory that we're on with synthetic biology. In five yeah. to 10 years time, somebody in their you know, garage lab at home with very little training in biology will be able to engineer and you know, produce new kinds of compounds that are potentially very lethal. And that is a threat to all of us everywhere, which is on the face of it, a good opportunity for us to try to coordinate and compromise with people that we may otherwise see as potential adversaries. Yeah, so is actually that where we start? Because the, the book talks about all things which I don't have time to talk about, but again, it is actually that specific subject where we all need to come together and go, we've had a taste of how bad this can be. We need to coordinate on managing this on a global basis, as important as AI and robotics and some of the other aspects are. That's exactly right. I mean, the book yeah. is actually a hopeful and positive outline of a bunch of strategies for how we can contain technologies and make sure that they always serve us collectively. And I think that we have to be much more optimistic and positive about the potential for states, nation states to work with one another, to compromise, to negotiate, to reach agreements. I mean, this is what we need more than ever over the coming decades as these new technologies really start to shape our lives and have massively beneficial impacts. Is Armageddon, as some of the industry experts suggested, the alternative, Mustafa, if we don't, to your point about aligning incentives? I think on the AI side, there's been a little bit of a tendency to perhaps not exaggerate, but certainly paint the worst possible darkest scenario, the lower prob probability scenarios. And in fact, there's a lot more practical near-term risks that we need to focus on. I mentioned yeah. synthetic media generation, for example, but there's also risks on the cyber hacking front, automating the process by which these models can probe networks and find weaknesses in you know, security infrastructure. That's a new threat vector that opens up, but it's also a very practical thing which we can collectively focus on working on. Yeah, actually, that is another takeaway from the book for me. You sort of focused us on the more immediate problems that we have to tackle and not get sort of lost in the big picture alarmism and understand that there are severe vulnerabilities today that we can tackle and actually on an individual basis. Um, I could keep you going for an hour, but I've run out of time. It's a great book. It's a great, great book. chatting with you. I read you. the whole thing yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Which so much, something. Julia. That's very kind. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk again soon. Mustafa Suleiman there, the CEO of Inflection and the author of The Coming Wave. Welcome back to First Move. Now, throughout the show today, we've been discussing the impact of climate change. Well, here's another unexpected event. Hurricane Idalia brought more than just rain and wind to southeastern United States. Flamingos are now turning up in a number of states as a result of the storm. One expert believes the birds may have been flying between Cuba and the Yucatan when they were diverted by Idalia. And there they are. Now, music news and the rumours are true. The Rolling Stones have just announced their first new studio album in 18 years, titled Hackney Diamonds. It includes songs the band recorded with drummer Charlie Watts before his death in 2021. Even Paul McCartney has a cameo playing bass on one track and the new album will be released on October 20th. And finally, call it the instant meal that, if gamers partake, it will most definitely try to keep them awake. The new product from the company behind the popular Cup Noodles brand is called Gaming Cup Noodles, and it's infused with 
caffeine, yes, to keep players alert. The Nissin company says it is the first gamer-friendly, quote, product in its history. Now, the caffeinated noodles apparently come in two flavors, and they have a thicker sauce than traditional cup noodles, which means that twitchy gamers don't have to worry about throwing it all over themselves. And to that, I say game on. I absolutely do not game off, quite frankly. Good catch. <laughs> Where's that licking liquor latte when you need one? That's all the caffeine I need. <laughs> and that's it for the show. If you missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my X and Instagram pages. You can search for at J Chatterley. Connect the World is up next. It was all about the throw. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.